Welcome. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. Joining me is my old friend, Ian Gordon. Uh, Ian uh, actually formally ran the website, The Long Wave Group, and uh, Ian is now semi-retired. However, his uh, opinion uh, is one that I value very much. Uh, Ian uh, has a very good handle on all things economic and how our system works. And he'll be joining me today in segments two and three. However, in this first segment today, I want to talk to you about something that, frankly, not many folks are aware of. Our economy, the economy in which we all function, the economy in which we all buy goods and services that we exchange money for, our economy is debt-based. Now, here's what I mean by that. All newly created money is loaned into existence. See, banks create money when they make loans. Now, to fully explain this, I'll briefly explain the fractional reserve banking system under which all, basically, world banks now operate. Currently, in the United States, all banks have to maintain a 10% reserve requirement. That means if you go put $10,000 into your bank, your banker has to reserve $1,000 of that $10,000 or 10%. However, that banker is then free to loan out the other $9,000. Well, as they loan out that other $9,000, for whatever reason, the borrower takes that borrowed money, in this case the $9,000, deposits deposits that $9,000 into his or her bank, That banker reserves 10% and is free to loan out the other 90%. And this process continues. So money is created as money moves from one bank to the next. Now, the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States, and it is a private group of bankers, when the Federal Reserve wants to slow down the economy, when there's too much inflation, and this happened actually in the late 70s and early 80s, They raise interest rates because the higher interest rates are, the less attractive it is to go borrow money. And of course, whenever the Federal Reserve wants to try to jumpstart the economy, they reduce interest rates, which they did to near zero after the financial crisis in 2008. And because that didn't work, they also took to engaging in quantitative easing, which, as we've discussed on the program in the past, is creating money out of thin air. But the point I want to make in this segment is this. As money is created, debt levels rise because all new money is loaned into existence. Now, debt levels cannot grow infinitely. There has to be a limit. You cannot accumulate debt to infinity. And when that debt limit is hit, that's when a bust occurs. Because our economy, going back to just most recently the 70s, has experienced a series of boom and busts. And this cycle occurs because our money is loaned into existence. Now, in this segment, I want to share with you one segment of the economy that may be, may be beginning to show that the bust part of the cycle may be upon us. 
And this segment is that of automobiles. And before I get to this, let me just remind you that if you've not yet received uh, the best-selling book, New Retirement Rules, the book uh, is being made available at no charge to our listeners. The book was on the bestseller list at Amazon upon its first release. This is the third edition. And if you'd like to get a copy of the book that explains these boom and bust cycles, along with strategies that you can use to potentially protect yourself, all you have to do is go to newretirementrulesbook.com and let us know where to mail your copy. Now, this past week, there were a number of news outlets that reported on the fact that auto industry executives are preparing for what they are calling a major industry disruption. Now, in order to prepare for this, virtually every automaker around the world is now cutting jobs. In fact, Bloomberg reported that worldwide, automakers' job cuts are at 38,000 and counting. Now, Ford recently announced the company would be cutting 7,000 salaried jobs around the world. This is significant because 7,000 jobs represents 10% of the company's global white-collar workforce. Now, Adam Jonas, who is a Morgan Stanley analyst, shares the opinion of many auto industry analysts who say that Ford cannot reach its stated profit goals for their smart redesign program with only 7,000 salaried worker layoffs. The consensus is that in order to reach its smart redesign program goals, Ford will need to cut an additional 23,000 salaried workers. Now think about that. If that happens, that would be an astonishing level of cuts. That would be more than 40% of the salaried workforce. Now Brad Carroll, who is Ford's spokesperson, was quoted as saying, we have been very clear that we are in the final stage of a reorganization of our salaried workforce. At the same time, we're working across the company in many ways to reduce the costs and become more fit. As we have said, this is not simply a restructuring or cost-cutting plan. It's a complete redesign of our business now and in the future. Daimler's CEO announced the company was looking at sweeping cost reductions to prepare for what he described as unprecedented industry disruption. And Hirota Sakawa, who is the CEO of Nissan stated that the company was going to need to be patient to try to get through a recovery period. The company announced a 45% plunge in operating profit, which is the lowest point in the last 11 years. And in Mr. Sakawa's own words, Nissan's performance is hitting rock bottom. Now, the driving force behind the auto industry's success in the past few years, or much of the success, has been attributed to creative financing options. Specifically, inventive financing options designed to get lower quality borrowers financed. Now, these lower quality borrowers are referred to as subprime borrowers. And a subprime borrower is someone with a low credit score. Now, just taking a look at the growth in auto loans since 2010, nine years ago, the number of auto loan accounts has increased 40%. From 80 million loan accounts to 115 million. And the outstanding loan balance has increased from 700 billion to 1.3 trillion. That's an 85% increase in the amount of automotive debt that exists in the last nine years. 
Now, why do we think that this may be coming to an end? Well, simply put, the current 90-day delinquency rate on auto loans is nearly 5%, and that affects about $60 billion of outstanding loans. So there's going to have to be another debt purge, which I alluded to at the beginning of this segment, is the purge part or the bust part of this economic cycle. Now, I believe this debt purging will take longer than it otherwise might because the average length of time over which a new car is financed in the third quarter of 2018, it was 68 and a half months. And some of these loans have outstanding repayment terms of 84 months. Now, this segment of the economy simply mirrors others. When you create money through debt, when debt reaches its limit, there are consequences. And those consequences are outlined in the book, New Retirement Rules. I'd encourage you to go uh, request your copy of the book. All you have to do if you want to get a copy is go to newretirementrulesbook.com and let us know where to send it. I'll be back with Ian Gordon. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to get your free copy. www.newretirementrulesbook.com You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. It is a uh, sincere pleasure for me to have back on the program today uh, a guest I interviewed, I think, uh, probably going back about 10 years or so, uh, Mr. Ian Gordon. Uh, Ian is the founder of the Longwave Group. Um, he uh, has been less active in recent years, but still uh, actively following what's going on in the world economy and the markets. And uh, He's a gentleman whose work and uh, opinion I value very much. Uh, so it's a pleasure to have you back on the program again, Ian. Welcome. 
Uh, it's a pleasure for me to talk with you, Dennis. So, Ian, let's just jump in um, very briefly. Uh, you look at uh, the economy through economic cycles, and you have been a, uh, a lifelong student, really, of something called the Kondratiev Wave. Could you, for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with that, explain what that theory is, and it'll really form a really good foundation, I think, for the rest of our conversation. All right. The um, the Kondratiev cycle was uh, developed by a Russian economist in the 1920s, and it's a long economic cycle of approximately 50, 50 60 years. Um, and it goes, you know, it, it, it's a, a cycle based on on the uh, the capitalist system, so that it it effectively goes through peaks and valleys. And uh, Kondratiev was able to anticipate that uh, when he wrote his thesis in the mid 20s that uh, the economies, the world economies, would be going into the what he called what I call the the winter of uh, of the cycle, which is the uh, depression stage of the cycle, and that's effectively the stage where uh, debt is wrung out of the uh, out of the economy. There's been a big debt buildup throughout the previous three seasons: spring, summer, and autumn. And uh, then in the winter, you know, the debt sort of it has overwhelms the ability of the economy to function. And it's wrung out of the system, so it's a very difficult period. Um, so effectively, you know, we are we are in I would say in the winter of the cycle again and now. And although it's not apparent to most people, because uh, the the ability of of governments to create money out of nothing, because we're on a paper money system in the last depression. Uh, that started in 1929. Uh, most of the world, uh, Western economies, enemy were the monies were based on gold, and therefore it was very difficult for governments to create uh, extra money to fight the uh, the looming depression and the the massive debt buildup that occurred, particularly you know during the First World War, the fighting of the First World War, and then in the 20s. So. Uh, this time we've we've been on a complete paper money system, so the ability to, of uh, central banks to create money out of nothing has been uh, paramount and has effectively held back the the depression, uh, you know, of the 20s and the and the payback period. But that's coming. Uh, it almost came in 2007-9. Uh, uh, the U.S. banking system almost failed at that period. And was bought back simply again because of the ability of the uh, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, to print money and keep the the um, economy from floundering and the banks from crashing. So, uh, although some banks, of course, did fail, but many banks would have failed had it not been for that ability to print. So we're we're going back into that period now, Dennis. So, Ian, when you take a look at the action of world central banks over the last 10 years since the financial crisis, you're seeing uh, things that I would describe only as, as lunacy. Uh, you have uh, almost the equivalent, I think, of about $10 trillion of government debt now yielding negative interest rates. Uh, money has been created, as you indicated, out of thin air. 
And, and it seems like every time these new monetary experiments are, are, are tried, uh, they have to get more extreme to get the same results they got last time with, with less extreme measures. So it just seems to me that there can't be too many more bullets left in the gun when you take a look at how crazy things have become as far as monetary policy. What, what's your take? Well, I, you know, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, um, the fact that uh, we didn't go down in 2008 is uh, because of that ability. But so much money has been created since then to effectively. And by the way, I mean, the thing that people have to understand, and it's very, it's absolutely paramount that people understand, the creation of paper money is the creation of debt. It's one and the same thing. So when you, you, when you print money, you actually create debt. And so the debt buildup, even though it was horrific going into 2008, we've almost add, uh, added double to that debt. So the, now the, the world debt situation is, is about $250 trillion worldwide. I mean, it, this is an impossible number to ever pay back. I mean, most people don't even really understand what a trillion dollars is but 220 trillion it's it's it has to take down the system so we're very very close i i i don't know if we'll even survive 2009 before the the whole system just collapses with the overweight of and the overburden of debt that's uh, now worldwide Ian, uh, I always uh, have said, uh, just from my observations, that you're, you're nearing the end of the boom phase of the cycle uh, as the behavior becomes more irrational. And, and I say that as a preface to uh, you know mainstream economic advisors. There's a professor by the name of Stephanie Kelton who's an advisor to uh, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders here uh, in the United States who says that... Uh, you know, modern monetary theory is, is, is the way to go. If stadiums never run out of points and governments never run out of money, and all we have to do is just keep printing and we can all live happily ever after. Uh, isn't, isn't that kind of talk uh, being embraced and getting traction uh, just outright dangerous and crazy? Well, it is, yeah, and it is being embraced, but it is crazy. I mean, um, because, as I said, the creation of that money is the creation of of, of debt, and uh, so the you know the, the world is absolutely it's is overpowered by the amount of debt that's uh, prevalent in the system. So that you 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 know the thing is that we are going to collapse like we did in the 30s, but this time the collapse is going to be substantially greater than it was in the 30s, simply because the debt is so much, significantly much greater than it was at that period in time. And because of the, you know, because of paper money systems that the world has basically been subjected to effectively since the 1930s, yes, there's some claim that the United States was still on a gold standard, but to fight that depression, the world left the gold standard to create paper money uh, in the 30s, and so this thing has been ongoing effectively since then. The creation of more and more debt has been ongoing since the 30s. Not, it wasn't obvious in the 30s because of the depression and so on, so that you couldn't, uh, uh, you know, consumers couldn't take on debt at that period in time, but the governments took on debt uh, and continued to take on debt and. And 
continue to this day to take on debt. Debt in the United States, the United States government owes $22 trillion. It's impossible for a government to pay that back. Um, so uh, the system is really now out of control. And, um, you, you know, this when it, when it, when it, it gives way, and it almost did in 2008. That's the thing that people have to realize, and they bailed it out. The Federal Reserve bailed it out with $20 trillion bailed out to bail out the banks. Not only were American banks bailed out, but European and foreign banks were also bailed out by the Federal Reserve, but simply creating money out of nothing. So, uh, Ian, when you when you take a look at what this reset uh, will look like. Uh, I want to talk about some some protective things, but but first, uh, it's interesting, and, and you really have been kind of a a mentor to me as far as studying history, because I think it was Winston Churchill who said those. Uh, if you want to understand what's going to happen in the future, you look deeply into the past, and when, when you look at now what's going on with this this trade war between the United States and China, and and tariffs being raised, and it's all part of this protectionist mindset. Um, it's almost like uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of, of the 30s that really saw world trade decline. And I just saw a report this morning that world trade is uh, literally dropping off a cliff. Are we doing this? Are we making the same mistakes over again? I, absolutely, Dennis. But that's what we do. You know, as George Santiano said, those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And and we are repeating it. And of course, again, the Smoot-Hawley was effectively one of the creators of the Great Depression. So, um, so we, you know, this fight that that Trump is doing, the the trade wars that uh, he's enacting. Uh, simply because he thinks that uh, uh, countries have taken advantage of the United States, like China and Europe, and so on, um, it doesn't benefit the you know the U.S. It doesn't be- benefit the consumers because the price of the of the tariffs are going to be paid by the consumers anyway. So, um, but the fact is that it means that the, the trade is sort of it, it, you know is 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 cut substantially because uh, because of the tariffs and and China's now way, you know coming back with tariffs of, of its own on American goods and that's exactly what happened when uh, US introduced the Smoot-Hawley uh, tariff act in in uh, I think it was 1930 so um you know again everything is you know there are so many parallels to the the beginning of the depression of the 30s today that it's uh, you know it's it's unbelievable and uh, well it is to me it is believable but the thing is that uh, what's going to happen is going to be catastrophic and I think that people have to understand it almost was catastrophic in in 2008 I wrote a piece in 2007 when I said this is it because I really thought that was the end with uh, their stones going down and so on but this time when it when it happens, it will be it. There'll be no, there'll be no getting away from it this time. So, Ian, you're saying that uh, I've interviewed guests on the program that said, you know, maybe the Fed can do it one more time. Maybe they can print a bunch of money. Maybe they can do a cashless society and negative interest rates and all these experimental scenarios. But it's your take then that, that there's no more bullets left in the gun. That we that, that the reset is inevitable. Although you know maybe imminent, maybe not. Is that is that really what you're saying? Uh, uh, 
I think it is imminent, and, and you know, um, and I don't think there's any chance of another reset. Um, you, you, you know, uh, sorry, uh, of, of extending the the problems beyond uh, once the, once it starts, the system starts to collapse. I don't think there's any chance that central banks will have any way in in extending the uh, the foolishness that's already effectively done been done since uh, since 2007 you know when you let these things when you if if you let these things take happen they're far less onerous on people than if you continually try to interfere in what i call the natural law of the markets and that's really what's been happening you know uh, i would say uh, probably since 2000 in many ways, 2000 was probably when the stock markets gave up. Then was the was effectively the beginning of the depression. But we've been able to offset it with this money printing. But they, but you know, you you start to see that countries now are, are returning to gold because gold is money. And I'm pretty sure that in the next reset, gold will come back as as money. Um, you know, because paper will fail. Uh, you really only, from my perspective, you really only have two choices. Is it paper or is it gold? And uh, China and Russia and other countries uh, are believing, you know, that it's gold and they are buying as much gold as they can, you know, the, officially and so on, so that you're going to see a reset and it and gold is, I'm pretty confident in making that prediction again based on the historic, on history, Gold is going to come back as money. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. That is the end of our first segment with Mr. Ian Gordon. That's the bad news, but the good news is Ian will hang around, and we'll have him for one more segment when RL Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. 
The new retirement rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I had the pleasure of chatting once again today with my old friend, Mr. Ian Gordon. And, uh, Ian, when I say that, I don't mean you're old. I mean we've known each other for a while. So it's a pleasure to have you back on the program today. And, you know, you were mentioning at the end of the last segment that it's your take that gold will come back as money. And, you know, when you look at the Russia, for example, without getting into the geopolitical uh, situation, uh, Russia now has uh, certainly been accumulating a lot of gold, and uh, I think the last bit of information I saw is that they've now pretty much eliminated all their holdings of U.S. treasuries. So is that a sign that Russia may be looking to link uh, the ruble ultimately to gold, in your view? I, I'm not sure that Russia, you, you know, I think it will, but, the, the, you know, Russia in itself is, the, the Russian economy is effectively too small uh, to have, you know, to to have an the ruble is, you know, is relatively unimportant. Um, so that link to gold will will not play a major part. But I think the Chinese are definitely uh, moving in that direction as well, as are many of the Silk Road countries that, uh, you know, China is sort of is, is uh, backing and so on. So. I'm pretty sure, and the reason why I'm terribly, you know, very much supportive of the idea of, of the world returning to gold standard is again based on history and again based on my work on the on the Kondratiev cycle, the long wave cycle, in as much as always in the winter of the cycle, we've always had an effective change in the monetary system. So that... Um, you know, the change from gold to paper occurred in the depression of the 30s in the winter of the previous cycle. The, pre the winter previous to that in the 1870s, the world went to gold entirely. Um, the United States went on a gold standard. The United States was on a bimetal system. Uh, they went on to a gold standard, an exclusive gold standard system in 1873, and that was during the previous depressions stage of the cycle. And in the third, in, in the initial cycle, uh, the U.S. effectively went off paper because the central banks, Andrew Jackson, destroyed the, central, the, the startings of the central bank system in the United States. So... We've always changed the monetary system during the, the the winter period of the cycle, so that we've we've been on a paper money system since the previous uh, the winter of the 30s, and I'm pretty confident we're making prediction that paper is going to fail, and we're going back to gold. And I think uh, China, because the yuan is not yet as important as the dollar, but uh, the Chinese economy is 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 effectively as big as the as the US economy and so on so that effectively China is preparing to bring uh, uh, go 
back to the world standard system, world monetary system. So, Ian, just listening to you then, uh, sounds like you would advise those who are listening um, that they should have some tangible assets versus paper assets. Is is that a fair assumption? It is. I mean, you need paper because you need, to, you know, the, the, the economies of today function with paper so that you obviously have to have paper. But I think for the, the, the safeguard, you need... Uh, you know, precious metals as your safeguard, as your insurance that the, you know, against the collapse of the paper money system. And um, so, you know, certainly I think, uh, you know, I've always been a, really a, a gold buff. I, you know, I used to promote a lot of gold companies and so on, uh, starting in 2000, uh, because I could see that gold was going to become the money of choice, and, and, and effectively that was, was a good reason for, I could see, was for owning gold. And, you know, gold's gone from $250 in, in, in 2000 to where it is today, and uh, again, uh, but it's going to go a lot higher when the paper money system of the world collapses. So, Ian, that kind of plays into where I was going to go next. I mean, if you look at a price chart of gold over the last five or five and a half years, uh, gold has really remained in a trading range. Um, what do you attribute that trading range to? Is there manipulation going on in the gold market, or uh, is, is gold just building a base for a run-up here? What, what's your take? Well, I, I'm absolutely convinced that there's manipulation in the gold market. Again, you know, people say we're... That's just a conspiracy. But there's always been a manipulation of gold uh, since we've, you know, the dollar's been on a paper money system because the U.S. is 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 absolutely uh, it's paramount on on the dollar retaining its reserve currency status for the United States because effectively it costs the, the United States nothing to buy anything because they can create dollars out of nothing. Everybody else has to earn those dollars. Uh, so if you want to buy oil, everybody has to go and earn dollars and then spend those dollars to buy oil. The U.S. just creates the dollars to buy the oil that she needs or whatever else she wants. So it's absolutely important. And so, you know, even you go back to the uh, the 60s, they had the London gold pool trying to hold back the price at $35 an ounce. You've had gold sales that have been going ongoing in the 70s, trying to hold the price of gold down, and and so, and it's not holding the price of gold down, but it's trying to convince uh, the world that the, the dollar is every bit as effective and as good as gold, because it's so important for the U.S. the the dollar to retain its uh, reserve currency status. So. Uh, and it's losing that status. As you've just said, Dennis, Russia is basically getting rid of its reserves. China is reducing its uh, dollar reserves. Russia is moving its reserves to gold, its dollar reserves to gold. Uh, it still gets paid a lot in dollars for its oil and gas that it exports. But once it gets paid, it basically turns those dollars into gold. So... Ian, uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, 
geopolitical tension, to use that term again, uh, with Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia still prices all its oil exports in, in dollars. Um, but it seems like uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, alliances might be changing. Should Saudi Arabia maybe export oil, taking the dollar and the Chinese currency for, for payment, um, w- would that effectively be a, a catalyst that, that, that might trigger this reset that we've been talking about? Well, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty sure that the Chinese are going to start to put pressure on Saudi Arabia to accept one for, uh, in payment for their exports to China of their oil. Um, and I think that, you know, other countries, I mean, the whole thing is other countries tried it and it didn't, you know, the United States didn't allow that to happen. Uh, Saddam Hussein wanted to trade his oil for euros, and we know what happened to him. Uh, Gaddafi wanted to trade his oil for gold, by the way, the gold dinar, and we know what happened to him. Uh, I don't think that the United States would invade Saudi Arabia if she was to accept payment in one, but the point is that, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure the Chinese are going to put pressure on Saudi Arabia to. Except one for payment. So, Ian, if someone's listening today, and then we've got time probably for one more question, if they've got money in traditional assets like stock funds and bond funds, and they've got money saved in a in a retirement account, um, what kind of advice would you have for someone listening today? Well, for me, um, you know, my, you know, I, I'm I'm past retirement age, so but for me. Um, you know, I basically follow, I practice what I preach and, uh, my retirement savings are essentially in, uh, in, uh, gold and gold equities. So moving ahead, uh, it would be your take that you'd be bullish on, on gold equities. And, you know, we, uh, when you go back and look at what happened, we referenced in the prior segment uh, the, the Great Depression in the U.S. Um, I, I believe that 90% of a portfolio in the Dow and 10% in, at the time, homestake mining, uh, the homestake mining uh, holdings were actually enough at that time to, to hedge the drop in the Dow after a period of time. So uh, would you envision that something similar could play out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, once the, once the, thing, the paper system starts to collapse, the stock market has to collapse uh, with it. And, uh, um, and, and gold really comes to the fore so that if you're, you know, if you're producing gold, uh, it suddenly becomes very lucrative. Uh, remember, you know, for a gold company, um, if they're producing 100,000 ounces or a million ounces of gold a year and the price goes up by 10%, that's 10% right to the bottom line. I mean, they don't have to increase their workforce or whatever. You know, car manufacturers, if they want to make more cars, they have to build more factories, build in, bring in more workers and so on. But for gold miners or or maybe silver miners, I'm not as bullish on silver as I am as on gold because I think the world is going back to a gold standard system. But uh, silver will probably play a secondary role as a monetary metal. Um, you know, um, uh, those companies are going to make uh, substantial profits as a result. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Ian Gordon. And, uh, Ian, it's certainly been a pleasure to catch up with you again and uh, love to have you back. Well, thank you so much for having me. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to get your free copy. www.newretirementrulesbook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and thanks again to Mr. Ian Gordon for joining me on today's program. You know, in segment one, I talked about the fact that not many people are aware of the fact that new money, when it's created, is really just loaned into existence. And this whole process, meaning that when money is created, debt is also created leads to this boom and bust cycle. And we talked about what's going on in just one segment of the economy, the automobile industry, to illustrate the point. Now here's the question. When the next bust hits in earnest, and to be completely fair, I have been wrong on my timing, uh, as have just about anybody else that uh, has tried to talk about when the next bust will hit. But the question is, when it does hit, what will the Federal Reserve do? Now, as I mentioned in the first segment, and as longtime listeners to the program know, the Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers that control U.S. monetary policy. It's not a government agency. Back in 1913, 
Congress and then President Wilson thought it would be a good idea to put private bankers in charge of the money supply. Well, if we want to know what the Federal Reserve will do after the next bust, we might go back and take a look at what they did after the last bust, and that might give us a pretty good idea of at least what they may attempt. Now, after the last bust, the Federal Reserve dropped interest rates to nearly 0%. Now, that really didn't achieve the desired outcome, which was to try to get the economy moving again, because once the debt limit is hit, people don't want to borrow money. And if people don't want to borrow money, then new money is not loaned into existence. So what did the Federal Reserve do? Since their old tried and true method of reducing interest rates did not work, they printed money out of thin air. Now, more money creation increases the risk of what I am going to call in this segment a crack-up boom. Now, if you listened to the program last week, you heard John Rubino use this term. And a crack-up boom, uh, that term was originally coined by Ludwig von Mises, who was an Austrian economist. Now, Mises studied the crack-up boom that occurred in Weimar, Germany after World War I. And a crack-up boom is most often defined as a crash of the credit and monetary system due to credit expansion, in other words, due to too much debt, and price increases that that can't be sustained over the long term. In other words, debt levels exceed sustainable levels, as do price increases. Well, when you go back and look at Weimar Germany after World War I, prior to World War I, the German mark to U.S. dollar exchange rate was about a little over four marks to the dollar. So four German marks to one U.S. dollar. At the end of the war in 1918, the exchange exchange rate about doubled. It was almost eight and a half marks to one dollar. And five years later, When the German hyperinflation or crack-up boom reached its peak, the exchange rate was 42 trillion marks to one U.S. dollar. So another way to define crack-up boom is massive inflation or even hyperinflation. Now this phenomenon of a crack-up boom is not all that rare. During the 20th century, there have been many examples. There was China in 1949, Brazil in 1989, Argentina in the late 80s, Russia in 1992, Yugoslavia in 94, Zimbabwe in 2009. We now have Venezuela going through something similar. And a crack-up boom, according to Mises, is the inevitable consequence of a rise in the money supply. Now, Mises put it pretty simply. He said that people hold money because it has purchasing power. Well, you don't need a degree in economics to understand that. Why do you hold money? Why do you save money? Because you can exchange it for things. You can exchange it for goods. You can exchange it for services. See, money's really not wealth. Money is a claim ticket on wealth. See, the amount of purchasing power that money has is determined by supply and demand for money. So, for example, imagine yourself with a billion dollars cash on a big pallet, but you're all alone on a deserted island. 
What is that money worth? It's really worth nothing. You might be able to use it to start a fire to try to get somebody's attention to rescue you, but there's no demand for the money. So money is really a claim ticket on wealth. Now, if the creation of money is equal to the, the demand for money, then overall, prices and purchasing power don't change all that much. However, once people start to trade their money, their claim tickets for tangible items, and the more they do that, the more prices rise and the more the purchasing power of money declines. So as the money supply is increased compared to the demand for money, that means prices increase because money buys less. Now Mises put it simply, once public opinion is convinced that the increase in the quantity of money will continue and never come to an end, and because of that, the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise, everybody becomes as eager as possible to buy as many tangible items as possible and restrict his cash holding to a minimum size. So the crux of this whole issue can be explained by one word, and that is expectation. You see, as long as people expect that the central bank will increase the supply of money on a limited basis and not go crazy, then the central bank can debase the currency without causing the complete destruction of the currency. Mises said this crack-up boom only occurs when people come to the expectation, there's that word again, that the increase in the money supply will occur on an ever-increasing basis. Here is what Mises wrote. Finally, the masses wake up. They become suddenly aware of the fact that inflation is a deliberate policy that will go on endlessly. A breakdown occurs. The crack-up boom appears. Everybody is anxious to swap his money against real goods, no matter whether he needs them or not, no matter how much money he has to pay for them. Now, today's debt levels worldwide are higher than can ever possibly be paid. And as we've discussed here in the past on RLA Radio, there are only three ways for the government to deal with debt. They can raise taxes, they can cut spending, or print currency. Now, you can set aside all the talk about confiscating the wealth of the rich and the billionaire taxes. There's only 515 billionaires in the United States, and we could confiscate 100% of the wealth of all billionaires, and we could run the government for a few months, not even a year. Cutting spending would require across-the-board cuts of 50%. Spending cuts of that magnitude would result in a deflationary depression. So the only other option is to print currency, and if that path, which is, in our view, by far the most likely then eventually a crack-up boon will have to be the result. Now the what is easier to predict than the when, but we talk about this in detail in the New Retirement Rules book. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, we'd be glad to send you one at no cost and with no obligation just to help you get a handle on this. Go to newretirementrulesbook.com and to let us know where to mail your copy, newretirementrulesbook.com. That's all I have for this week. I'll be back next week. <music> 